All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks so much for coming today. We are in a series right now on the Gospel of John. Most of you are aware, but in case you're not, we've been preaching through John for about a year and a half, actually, knowing that this season was coming, kind of planning it around the end of it, around Easter time. And so uh, we've been preaching through the resurrection now for a couple of weeks, and will this week and kind of into next week on Easter Sunday as well, looking at some of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus starting today with Mary Magdalene and then uh, looking at the disciples in various forms these next few weeks as well. So it's kind of why uh, there was some method of madness. It wasn't just luck, although it kind of feels that way sometimes, but um, how it worked out here calendar-wise for us. So I'm um, going to pick up right where we left off last week in uh, John 21 to 10 was last week's passage. We'll pick up in verse 11 today. Uh, looking at Easter from Mary Magdalene's perspective is kind of the big goal. Um, Mary, if you don't know, was a woman uh, from Magdala, hence the name, uh, who Jesus cast seven demons out of and who became one of Jesus' followers after that. Uh, it's kind of, in one sense, uh, her origin story in the Bible. We don't know a ton about her. Um, but you might be aware there is some debate over whether or not she's the same woman in John chapter 8 who Jesus, sh- Jesus showed kindness to and forgave, the adulteress, and or the unnamed woman in Luke 7 who used her hair and tears to wash Jesus' feet. Uh, but there's no direct scriptural uh, evidence to support that it's the same woman. It could have been, uh, but probably isn't. Um, But this would also make Mary of Bethany, sister to Mary or Martha and Lazarus, a different Mary as well. And so there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. It's really hard to keep up sometimes. But uh, Mary Magdalene, though, was the one we read about last week, who was the first to realize that, that the tomb was empty and ran to tell Peter and John quickly, and who was now back at the tomb Uh, crying because at this point she still believes someone just stole Jesus' body, uh, whether it was um, uh, grave robbers or uh, this week we'll see she uh, thinks it might just be this gardener who's walking around and who happens to actually be Jesus and she doesn't recognize him at first. So lots of dramatic twists and turns uh, in in today's passage. Um, All right, so what I want to do is read from John 20, uh, 11 to 18, and uh, because we're so much coming at this from the, the vantage point of Mary Magdalene. I just want to encourage you guys with her, but with also other human figures like this in the Bible, uh, is to see her not just as a concept uh, or even an example to follow, but as a representative. And by that I mean a representative of us. Uh, she is not that different at all from us. As a sinner who had this moment, this big paradigm shift, uh, this moment where the veil was pulled up or the scales came down, whatever metaphor you want to use, in front of her eyes, and she saw Jesus for who uh, he really was. And so a lot, of, a lot of paradigmatic stuff going on here. We think about what it means to be a Christian and what uh, our stories were like when we became Christians, or if you're not yet, uh, what Christianity is about, what that means. And in a lot of ways for Mary, too, this is not just like a conversion moment. She's already been a disciple of Jesus, already been a follower. And so in a lot of ways, this is uh, paradigmatic of the Christian life, too. We're at this constant uh, interaction, in in a way, in a sense, with Jesus on this level. So kind of getting ahead of myself, but let's uh, go back and read the whole thing to start here. Uh, Starting in verse 11 and picking up again from last week um, with uh, Peter and John uh, going back home after they saw the empty tomb. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but did not realize that it was him. 
He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who was it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you, had carried, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Okay, so again, Easter from the vantage point, uh, the perspective of Mary Magdalene. The first thing I want to do is look at what she sees when she looks into the tomb. So kind of like Peter and John last week, but remember, they didn't see angels. So uh, this is a new thing, kind of a new perspective on what's kind of going on theologically with the resurrection, what it means for us, how it pulls from the Old Testament. I kind of keep that in mind, too, as we go forth today. There's a lot of Old Testament imagery here being kind of wrapped up in this one moment of Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. And we're just going to scratch the surface today, but these are, uh, these are uh, some big things. So the first thing from her perspective is she sees angels inside the tomb uh, from, verse, from verses 11 and 12. And one of the things that John chooses to record that the other three gospel writers don't is how exactly the angels were situated in the tomb when Mary looked in. So it says, one was seated at the head of where Jesus' body has been and one at the foot. And so there's likely a large uh, stone table of sorts that Jesus lay on uh, when he was buried and these two angels were seated on that slab or table, one on each end. Think of like a large uh, kind of rectangular block that the angels were kind of uh, flanking, uh, at least in terms of how they were sitting. So it would have been kind of like this, although this is from the side, so a little bit hard to see, but you can see her peering in and seeing these two angels uh, clothed in white uh, sitting on both sides of this uh, stone tablet. Or here's another image, which is more straight on, which is helpful. Uh, you can see Mary there and, uh, and these two angels seated uh, in, in that way. Or here's just a really crude depiction here. So um, now this might seem a little bit arbitrary. Uh, we might think, well, why does it matter when, like where they were sitting? Isn't it more important uh, to kind of unpack what they talked about? And of course, what, what's being said uh, to her is important. And um, if you don't know, the other three gospel accounts record more in terms of what the angels said to the women uh, and to Mary uh, at the tomb. Um, but we might still be asking that question, like, well, why does John record it this way? And do they even have to, like, be sitting? Like, why is that even important to say? Well, it does matter. And the reason is because of what this image resembles from the Old Testament. Um, and when we look at this image, especially in this way, uh, with kind of this cubic thing, a rectangular thing, and these two angels uh, flanking the right and the left, it's meant to evoke an image of an object uh, in the Old Testament that we know as the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and so this is uh, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which kind of like encapsulates, this is uh, a box of sorts, uh, just covered in gold, as you can see, which uh, encased a few different kinds of things. I'll mention one of those in just a minute. On the top, that cover with the two angels kind of seated on the right and the left of it, uh, which again is what Mary is kind of seeing an image of when she looks into the tomb, uh, is called the mercy seat, or some translations say uh, atonement cover. Uh, but this was placed inside the temple in the Old Testament. In fact, it was placed inside what we call the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary that no one could go, but was the symbolic presence of God's Spirit uh, himself. But the, the high priest went once a year 
to throw blood uh, on top of that mercy seat on the day of atonement where the sins of the people would be atoned for by the death of an animal but by the blood being thrown on top of this, uh, of this mercy seat. And the reason why all that's important then to connect these two things is because it's showing us symbolically that Jesus, through his burial, just went into God's presence for us to atone for our sin. More than that, it shows us that Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the mercy seat where blood was sprinkled and thrown to atone for our sin. Uh, Romans 3.25 actually um, highlights this explicitly linguistically. It says, God presented Jesus as the mercy seat. Um, The CSB says mercy seat explicitly to kind of connect these dots. The NIV says uh, sacrifice of atonement or atonement cover. The ESV says propitiation, but all the same idea. The Greek word for mercy seat here is the same word used in the Old Testament uh, to refer to the same thing, the mercy seat, uh, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so uh, if you if you are a grammar nerd uh, and like that stuff, there you go. Uh, it's actually really cool. Um, but Jesus is explicitly called then this place of atonement. He is the locus of atonement. He is where God dealt with sin. There's no other place. He is the person, he is the place even, the place of his burial. And the angels sitting in this way help to be an emblem of this to show us that when Jesus died and was buried, our sin, our wrongdoing, our disbelief, our pride, all the times we've hurt people, all the times we've separated ourselves from God, all that's being fixed, it's being atoned for uh, at high cost. To, to Jesus himself. Also, you might remember from last week, uh, in John 26, uh, it says that um, Jesus, or his grave clothes were seen, uh, and they were linen cloths. So when Jesus rose, the, his grave clothes were left inside the tomb, and John takes time, as well as the other gospel writers, to note this. Uh, well, that actually adds to the picture even more, because this is exactly what the high priests of the Old Testament did when they entered the holy place and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Leviticus 16 in the Old Testament says, the priests are to go into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments, and leave them there. And so again, so basically we have like three things kind of coalescing. Jesus is the mercy seat, the place of atonement. He is the blood offering, the one who spilt his blood uh, so that uh, we might have atonement and forgiveness and cleansing. And he's also the high priest. He's the one who went in as our representative. He went into God's presence as a human being and also uh, uh, one uh, who died uh, so that we might enter in and have access to him. And so as we talk about like what the good news is this uh, or is in this for us, that's the first thing is our sins have been atoned for. I mean, not to bury the lead, but that's, that's it. I mean, when we see mercy seat imagery in old or now in the New Testament, that's what's being shown, not just said, like in Romans 3, uh, but shown, uh, that what just happened here with Jesus' burial was very temple-like. It was very high priestly. It was very locus of where the problem of our greatest problem in life, uh, which is that we are separated from God and that because of our sin, that was fixed single-handedly, not with our assistance, not with our help, um, but but at high cost to Jesus, all right? Then second, kind of on the flip side of that, the second point of good news here with all this is you're not the mercy seat. You're not the priest. Your works, 
your devotion and your obedience are not the place of atonement, nor will they ever be. The fact that Jesus was buried in a temple-like place in the tomb and in a mercy seat kind of way, but not actually in the temple itself, which still existed in Jesus' day, tells us that he's a new kind of mercy seat. Uh, Actually, earlier in John 2, remember when he said, uh, basically in so many words, that my body is the new temple. I'm the new place of God's presence. Uh, And when you strike this body down, I will rise it again three days later. Uh, when 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 it's destroyed, I will piece it back together. I will rise again. So it's very early a uh, nod to the resurrection in, uh, in the Gospel of John that we, we looked at a long time ago. But the idea here is because they're different, uh, unlike the old mercy seat and Ark of the Covenant, which if you remember contained a few things, one of which was the Ten Commandments, Jesus' tomb has no law in it whatsoever. It's just his body. It's just a place where he used to lay. And so, again, this is, this is a further nod to this idea that our salvation is wrapped up and bound up completely in what Jesus did here, uh, not in our uh, ability to keep God's commandments. This is a, a New Testament. This is why he dies outside the city, apart from the temple, in a, in a temple-like way, in a mercy seat-like way, but not blending himself with Old Testament things so that we might say they look ahead to him But by fulfilling those things, he surpasses them. He creates a a New Testament, a new version or heavenly version of those things that are much better and that are completely one way, not two way, not shared. Uh, We we don't cooperate with this. It's completely received by us, uh, as the Bible says elsewhere, a gift, a gift from a a generous and willing God. And so again, because Jesus is the place of atonement, uh, you don't have to go anywhere uh, or, or do anything. Um, there's no pilgrimage for Christianity. Um, even the, the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, John Bunyan, you guys read this? Um, this is probably an unpopular opinion, but I can't stand that book. Like, it is, it is terrible news. Like, it's, it's super scary. And it's just like, if this is true, I'm toast. Like, I'm done. Uh, but that's a sidebar. If you like it, great. I'll pray for you. But no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> It actually is. There's a lot of good parts to it, too. But, uh, but, but there is no pilgrimage for Christianity. Jesus is everywhere. Uh, because he is where we are, there's no place to travel to. There's no place to go with your goodness. Uh, there, there's no, place to tra- no, no thing to traverse. There's nothing, no one to impress anymore. Uh, just this constant recognition that he is so close to us that, not, that what else has to be done? That the place of God's presence, the, the ultimate mercy seat, uh, is so much wrapped up with Jesus and what he's done, who now lives everywhere by the Spirit, um, that, that there's, there's nothing else to be done. He is our new mediator. Okay, the third part, or piece, uh, of good news with this is that this, so Mary then, if this is kind of like a picture of the Holy of Holies, um, this is a picture of you and me staring into God's presence and not dying. So that's huge as well. Uh, in the Old Testament, if you went into this place, you would die. Uh, we're too sinful to be in God's presence. We're too unclean. Uh, in fact, the high priest who went in once a year had a rope tied around his ankle, so if he did something wrong, he could be pulled out without someone else dying going in to get him. Like, it was that severe. And so the fact that Mary's just kind of pe- peering into this is a sign that things are different now. That the covenants have changed. That there, there is no threat of death by being in God's presence because of what Jesus has done. Uh, in fact, it's not just that. It's also a picture, Mary's also a picture of us 
staring into the place where God used to be, but now he's not there because he's set out to find us, to be with us. Uh, remember in the gospel accounts where when the angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen, just as he, just as he has said. And so Easter, by way of Mary Magdalene, tells us God is not home because he's out looking for you. On your best days and on your worst days, he's not home because he's looking for you. He's not waiting for you to find him. If you weren't here last week, I made a big deal of that, and I'll just kind of underline it again in case you weren't here. But the fact that Peter and John and Mary look into that, and today too with Mary, but they all look in and Jesus isn't there is incredibly important theologically for you because your guys' faith stories, your journeys, wherever you're at, Jesus isn't waiting for you to get it together. He's not waiting for you to find him. He's not waiting for you to win the race to the tomb like Peter and John sprinted, if you remember that whole thing, last week. Um, that nowhere in the Bible is it depicted that God is waiting for you. I hope that's a relief. It's meant to be. He's not waiting for you to uh, fill up the cup of obedience so that therefore he, now he has something to work with. So now he can save. Uh, now he can act. Now he can move. The fact that they looked in and he wasn't there. And not only that, but that after this, and we'll see this in a minute, he finds them, he finds us, is crucial to see. Um, and also know that it, it's very normal for you not to think that. It's very normal for you to default into this, well, I know God found me initially, but now he wants me to find him and seek him every day. And the answer to that is absolutely not. Absolutely not. He seeks us primarily, always, wholly, fully. If we ever seek him, it's because he seeks us first. That doesn't change. Uh, if, if in your mind you, you shift that around, you change that, um, all kinds of bad stuff fl flow downstream from that. Nothing good comes from that. God gets smaller, you get bigger. Uh, God gets less loving, uh, you get um, more amazing or something like that. And it only leads to pride or fear or some kind of just damning theology that will, that, that will at least in your heart and mind, uh, will lead you away from gospel truth and steal your joy. All right, more on that later. Uh, this next piece uh, is... Uh, she, the next perspective piece is that she supposes Jesus is just a gardener. Really interesting part here. Let me read verses 14 and 15 again. It says, At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him. I will get him. All right, so uh, another Old Testament leaning uh, image here has to do with John's uh, oft-revisited theme uh, in the gospel. I know a lot of you have seen this. If you haven't, though, uh, this oft-repeated, -re revisited idea of Jesus inaugurating a new creation through his earthly ministry, but especially his death and resurrection. Here, it has to do with Jesus and Mary being positioned as a new Adam and Eve. Obviously not in the same, on the same levels. There's nothing physically marital, or sexual here, but on a spiritual level, there's a pretty explicit bridegroom and bride motif happening, uh, and especially when we bring in a greater wealth of scripture to see that this is one of the biggest ways that Jesus self-discloses in the Bible, is I'm like a groom to you, uh, or God is like a father. Uh, this familial language is, very, is rich. It's, uh, there's a plethora of it. 
uh, in the Bible so that we won't miss it. That the way we understand salvation has more to do with family language than servant language. Uh, More with we just are, our identity is uh, sons and daughters. Our identity is the bride of Christ. We've been declared something, uh, won over uh, by our creator rather than we are servants who are kind of held at bay, who get the you know, the, the living quarters outside the house or something, the servants' quarters. Like, no, we're, we're, we have a place at the table, like David's enemies did in the Old Testament, his enemies, uh, because David was that kind. Like, we are the enemies of Christ who become sons and daughters now because of all the stuff, what Jesus has done. He's so much saved us that that's the case. So here, though, again, Jesus and Mary, to kind of back up a little bit with that, Jesus and Mary being positioned as a new Adam and a new Eve. Uh, It's kind of a simple way, chart-wise, to understand it. Um, Jesus, who the Bible calls in Romans 5, the second Adam, uh, the supposed gardener, which was Adam's job in Genesis, is here with Mary, who is called a woman, just like Adam calls Eve, names Eve a woman in Genesis 2, uh, and they're in a garden. That's that's just the context of it. They're in a garden. Like, this is not a coincidence. Um, And and again, the good news for us in all of this is that uh, Jesus is the church's husband. To kind of go back to what I was saying, uh, there's a relational idea here that uh, is important to see. I think one of the reasons why Jesus appears first to a woman is so this idea will be underlined. It's not the only reason. One One of the reasons why he doesn't appear to his male disciples first uh, but, but to Mary first in this level is to really underscore marital language and how in the New Testament, a, a new wedding is taking place, just like in the very beginning, just like a second creation is taking place, just like in, in the very beginning. Many Christians throughout history, too, have also seen here a reference back to the Song of Songs in the Old Testament, where if you uh, have read this Old Testament poem, uh, a big part of this Old Testament poem is where this woman is separated from her fiancé, searching for him, but she can't find him. But then he appears to her because we see that it turns out he was looking even more for her than she was for him. Uh, And so there is a reason why so many Christians throughout history have linked these stories, the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs in John 20, because it's the exact same thing. Mary is looking for Jesus, and she can't find him, and she's in despair but then there's this like elation that comes uh, where, where it turns out, whoa, twist in the story is, um, is that Jesus is looking for her more than she is for him. And so there's union language here uh, utilized. It's, it's suggestive of there's a time of engagement and preparation and prophecy in the Old Testament that's over. And now is a time of marriage. Now is a time of fulfillment and there's no more waiting anymore. Also, we have things like in Romans 7, uh, where it says that we have died to the law, so we are free to marry another. This metaphor Paul uses, is we've, it's, it's like we, uh, we were married to the law, God's laws, uh, covenantally speaking. And because um, we've died to it, or better yet, Jesus died to make a New Testament, we're free to marry another. And so you see how there, that there's no room to blend them. With Paul's analogy, there's no room to say, like, the gospel's not a polygamous idea. Uh, if you think that it's about Jesus and his commandments, you're, you're spiritually speaking, you're a polygamist. Uh, but God is saying, I have died to free you from your former connection in marriage to the law. Now you're wedded to me. This is his argument. And that's what it means to walk in the new way of the spirit, quote, not in the, quote, 
old way of the written code. So now what it means to be a Christian, familiarly speaking and maritally speaking, is to be one with Jesus alone by faith, not by our works, by his grace, not by our obedience. Galatians 3 and 4 also, again, highlight family language over servant language. I won't go back into that, but this is where all this, this becomes so important and practical for us is Jesus says, I'm like a husband to you. And um, although all earthly marriages have holes in them or, or scars or um, stains on them on some level, they're all imperfect, Jesus's is perfect. And so no matter how bad our marriage, Jesus is saying, I'm the true and better husband. I'll never divorce you or fail you. I'll never cheat on you. I will always be faithful and always be there in your darkest hours and I'll always fight your battles. That's the kind of husband uh, that, that he is. And that's, that is the bullseye. That's the, the center of the Christian faith. One more thing here I would add is uh, think of the differences too with, with, when we compare John 20 with like Genesis 2 and 3. Um, when Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, it was punishment for their sin. But when Mary is sent out of the garden in John 20, it's with good news. Uh, stark difference there, right? The first garden came with an exile for disobeying a command, but the second garden is void of punishment because it's void of law. And the law always incites sin. It always incites our inability to keep it. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve and Israel and Jonah in uh, all kinds of, whether it's individuals or nations, it's just this constant mantra of Scripture that when the command comes in, it leads to our disobedience. But that's another way to look at this too is that uh, in the New Testament, Jesus, the second Adam, actually obeys the Father's command to go and die for the sins of the world. And now you and I, if we're Christians, we live out of that love. We live out of his obedience. Um, and, and now we get to share good news with the world like Mary got the privilege of being the first one to do 2,000 years ago. All right, third angle. She has a paradigm shift, major one actually, while talking with Jesus like we, like we all do. Verse 15 again and 16. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, she turned around and, and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means Teacher. All right, pretty cool moment. And we don't, you know, I, I always like to just kind of picture Jesus doing like a little bit of a, one of those, you know, trying to give her a different angle or something. Like it's, it's really, I mean, we just don't know. But uh, it's it's really endearing uh, moment here where there's intimacy, like knowing someone by, on a first name basis. This is the son of God saying this. This is not uh, a, a, a first century sage. This is the son of God. Who's, who's saying this in this, this, this way. It's, it's amazing. Um, so the, the ultimate paradigm shift here, though, is the shift from Jesus is dead to Jesus is not dead. That's the ultimate one. But before we get there, or she gets there, Jesus himself appears, starts talking to her, and she doesn't realize it's him. It's, again, it's this, it's this dramatic twist. Uh, the very one she's looking for is staring at her right in the face, but she's blind to him. And that's a huge question uh, that I think this passage elicits, right, is why? You ever thought that when you, if you read this before? Like, why, did, why can't, she knew him so well. I mean, is it really that problematic? Is there really that much kind of division here, separation between Good Friday and Easter morning? It's not that much time-wise. The question is, why can't she see? Is it just because her eyes are cloudy with tears? 
Or is it because Jesus looks different than he was when he was buried because he was perfectly healed and has different clothes on? I mean, I think those are possibilities and maybe part of it, but I, I think there's more going on here than just that. There's another obstacle that needs to be overcome that Jesus wants her to see. And she might not be getting it right away in real time, but as readers, it's held out for us uh, plain as day to see on this side of the cross, especially with full veil pulled up. But it's held out for us to see. Mary's statement, tell me where his body is and I'll get him, is giving way to something greater. It's giving way to Jesus' full veil-lifting self-disclosure to Mary by way of speaking her name. And so it's two sides of the same coin. Uh, To Mary's statement, I will get him. Tell me where he is. I will get him. I will help his body. To that, the response is, not only does she clearly not have to do that physically because Jesus just appeared to her, right? But she also doesn't have to do that in the broader sense of the term. In other words, to Mary's, I will get him, the gospel responds, no, you don't have to do that, Mary. God is more gracious than that. You don't have to find him or get him. He has come to you on his own volition, full of love and grace in his eyes, and a smile on his face, and a desire to win you to himself. All you have to do is, is believe. All right, so that's, that's the one side, but the other side of that coin, not in, a, um, not in a contradictory way, but another angle on it, is this is also why she can't recognize him. It's to show us that God is the revealer more than we are the finder. If you think in Scripture, this is not the only time that there's a post-resurrection looking at Jesus, but I can't recognize him a moment. Remember Luke 24, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus had the same thing. Why can no one recognize him uh, who know him so well? Um, and again, this is, this is the biggest reason. There, there's lots of reasons, uh, smaller ones maybe, circumstantial ones, or at least that might be true. The biggest one theologically is because is to show us, not just say to us, show us that God is the revealer more than we are the finder. It's to show us grace over works. So when, when Jesus says her name here, it changes everything. It's the, and it's the same with us. Uh, this is, that's why I said before, this is paradigmatic of our salvation experience. Um, it, again, if you see Mary as a concept or a, a blip on the radar of history, this passage will never mean that much to you at all. It, it just won't. But if she is a picture of you, it will mean everything. If this is a picture of your story, it actually has the power to change you uh, from, from the inside out. And that's what's happening here. This is our story too. If you're a Christian, if you're, if you're not yet, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is, this is a picture of God's pursuit of you uh, as well and how one way it is. But again, through the lens of Mary, this is saying we are Christians not because we had everything figured out, but because he appeared to us out of nowhere, like the wind, like an unsuspecting stranger and spoke our name. And instantly the walls of disbelief, blindness, sadness, and despair fell down. And we could see him for who he truly was. Um, remember uh, Paul the Apostle, or the, uh, he wasn't Apostle yet, but uh, uh, Saul's conversion experience in Acts 9? Remember, remember that? Also paradigmatic in a way of our story. Uh, I won't go into that for time's sake today, but, but very, he wasn't even looking for Jesus. Again, Romans 10, 
God has the audacity to say, I revealed myself to people who weren't even looking for me. Isn't that amazing? Now, here's the better news. That's your story too. It doesn't mean that we never look for him or never seek. It just means there's something going on behind the curtains of that that's more powerful and that's more dictating of our story than our actions. So we can rest on what's behind the curtain, not on us and what we do to be assured of our salvation. And so with Jesus then, this is, um, to kind of go back to the creation language stuff, Jesus' words are powerful. There's a reason why he's saying Mary and then she sees. Because this is the same God who in the very beginning said, let there be light, and there was. Let there be understanding in this case. Let there be the light of salvation in the heart of a sinner, and there was. Uh, This is the the same powerful, in this case, recreative word of Jesus who speaks over our life and who's always doing that, even when we're just at work or at home with our friends or family or just by ourselves or just taking a walk or not even thinking about him. He's thinking about you. He's speaking your name uh, and renaming you even, giving you a new identity in him uh, all the time. Uh, by grace, not by, not by your works. So there's a power side. In other words, there's a power side of the idea here. But there's also a grace side of things. And, and the question I want to give you guys is, what if the first thought we had, or one of the first thoughts we had when we thought of God was him saying our name with a smile? Like, is that, is that a natural instinct for you guys to think of God that way? It probably isn't. If it is, awesome. That's a gift. Uh, but... But it probably isn't. If you're like me, it probably isn't. What if one of the first things you thought of, though, was that? Uh, A.W. Tozer once said, one of the most important things about us theologically is precisely that. He said, what do you think about when you, the first thing, when you think about God, what comes to mind? Because either it's a really bad image of him or really good. I guess it could be middle too, but, you know, it's probably one or the other. And, um, and the only way to be really guided in the right way is, is scripture and the love of other brothers and sisters in the church. I've shared before, I'll, I'll just, I think, but I'll say it again. Um, one of my like default ways of my brain wiring is every morning uh, I, I wake up with this uh, image of God being more like a benevolent boss and giving me a list of things to do rather than a loving father. And um, not that that's an active thought every morning, like, oh, there it is. But I mean, like, by default, I just revert into that. And... Um, Maybe for you it's something else. But the only way for me yeah, to counter that is Scripture. Because my voice and the world's voice, what they say God is like, what they say salvation is like, which is always us-based, uh, is a lie. And the, the better word of the gospel is the only thing powerful enough to come at that bad theological viewpoint of God and, and give me a better way that actually frees me and... Um, Far from paralyzing, it actually frees. And it makes me think less about myself because it's not about law anymore. And I can actually think about God freely. Actually think about other people. Uh, in, in, uh, in a very uh, imperfect way, but still. Uh, and so, again, maybe it's something different for you guys, but that's just an example um, of how when this becomes paradigmatic, it, changes your, it, it does change us. Uh, um, not even in like an external way. It just like, it, it starts to work up something from within uh, to give us a better view of God's unconditional love rather than this, like, teamwork aspect. Rather than, rather than Mary saying, 
tell me where he is. I will help Jesus. I, I will help his body. I will assist him. Uh, it's almost like a don't worry, I'm here uh, kind of thing. That, and that is, and Mary's not intending the bad theology there. It's just we all have this. Uh, it, and Jesus doesn't rebuke her for it because he's kind, you know, and he's just, he's enough for her in the midst of the bad theology. But, but the point is, uh, that's not the way to think as a Christian. Uh, the, the, every single day is the manna, it, it's the bread of, of Jesus Christ. We don't, we don't move on from it. So to think that every day God has love for us, he, he's not thinking of us in disgust or disappointment or anger. Uh, it, it, you know, if the first thing you think about with God is he has something for me to do, I think this passage kind of corrects that. There's no bait and switch. There's no like, oh, saved by grace, best news ever. Oh, but actually, sorry, I didn't quite mean that. Uh, there's like a lot of stuff here for you to do to prove your worth. Um, that is the default way of thinking for every Christian, by the way. So it's not weird if you think that way. Uh, welcome to the club. That's, you know, we, this, the church is a place of healing, from, should be, from that way of thinking, uh, rather than propagating that. And that's why we counter it so much here. We're speaking against it defensively uh, as we, just as much as we offensively hold up grace uh, more and more all the time. Uh, Luke 15, 6 uh, says, uh, rejoice with, it's a parable about God. Rejoice with me, I, I have found my lost sheep. Uh, this, is, this is a picture of God who had 99 sheep and one was missing. And, um, but there's, what I like about this parable, a lot of things, but there's an invitation here to, to be happy with the finder. And I was thinking about this this week. I, I think usually, there might be exceptions to this, but usually the one who finds something is happier than the one who's found. That's, I think it's almost always true, by experience, I mean, right? Like if you find something you've lost, uh, usually you're happier than, than the thing found. There's joy for the one found as well, but a lot of times the one who's lost doesn't realize they're lost, you know? I think in a parental, parental terms a lot here too, but it, it could be a lot of things or a pet or something, I don't know. But it's like th- there's, um, there's more joy for the finder, and that's why Luke 15 and other parables like it are, are written this way. Uh, God is saying, rejoice with me, be happy with me. I found the one who was lost. So here's the question. Do you think Mary is the only one happy here in John 20? I will say Jesus is even happier than she is. Much happier that he found her, that he's pursued her, and that he he has her again, he's brought her back than, than Mary is. And you see, what, what Mary's perspective helps us to see from John 20 is there is a romantic side to Easter. There's a romantic side to the holiday. There's a romantic side to, to this almost Christian holy day that we have once a year. There's a romance to it. This is something that we miss if we make resurrection passages only about apologetics or how to defend the historicity of the resurrection. That's, that's a good thing. But if that's all we do, it's, it's not as good of news. It's not personal enough. And at best, it, it comes back to you knowing all the right answers to give your non-Christian friends. Uh, that's not what this is about. There's a time to talk about that, but that would be a bad sermon. Uh, what, what makes for a good uh, hearing from God moment of preaching or just reading yourself as you read these things uh, to hear from God is seeing that he had more joy than we did. Uh, he's finding more than we do. Uh, that there's marriage language, that there's union language, that there's no more separation at all between you and God. So where are you going? 
What else has to be done? If the problem is separation, and Jesus says, I'm like a bridegroom to you, which is union language, one flesh, remember, in Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, the, the two will become one flesh. That th- th- this happens when people are get married. So one fleshness. Actually, that's about Christ and the church. If that's the case, no more separation. Where are you pilgrimaging to? Where are you going? A lot of times, like, God is looking at us saying, I'm right here. Like, where are you going? So, so like with Mary, right? Where are you looking for? I'm right here. Why are you trying to traverse the gap? Why are you trying to impress there's no, no, nothing else is required except belief in me. Just believe me. Believe in me. And so the point here, I'll end with this, uh, the, the point here is not primarily be happy in Jesus. The point is believe in Jesus' happiness in finding you at great cost to himself. For as the song says, love is strong as death and even stronger because the bonds of death couldn't keep Jesus away from us. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage and for the endless grace that it contains. Um, thank you for uh, how Scripture is literally being fulfilled. Uh, the, the stories that came before, we're seeing why they exist. Linen cloths and mercy seats with angels on top and arcs of the covenant with law in it and temples with spaces called inner sanctuaries and holy, holy of holies and love poems and, and, and that and many more things. We're seeing why they existed. Uh, they are coming to a head. The finish line is here. Jesus is saying, I'm the, you're saying, I'm the reason they exist. And we thank you, God, for giving clarity through your son uh, to help us understand these things. And not just understand them, but to see why they're good news for us. That, that in you we have love. In, and love is greater than law, as the Bible says. In the Old and New Testament, love is greater than law. Uh, love outpaces it. Love is better than it. Love is more personal than it. Uh, love actually dies for us. Law never does that. But, but, uh, but Jesus, you do. And so, uh, so we thank you that in you we have assurance that we can never lose what's been given. Uh, assurance that we can bank on the work of another to know we're saved, not on the work of us or the call to reciprocate what's been given, uh, but, but simply uh, the call to believe and the one who called out our name and spoke into the formless void of our chaotic hearts, like uh, you did in the beginning, God. Uh, you spoke into the void of our hearts, into the nothingness that is inside of us, and you brought color, you brought life, you brought awakeness, uh, you brought a resurrection that we experience now spiritually, and uh, one day after we die, uh, physically, when you come back, and, and we pray you'd hasten that day, uh, that it would come quickly. Uh, in Christ we pray. Amen.